Hello and welcome to episode 64 of the Cognicast, a podcast by Cognitech Inc. about software and the people that create it. I'm your host, Craig Andera. Uh, we have a few announcements for you this uh, episode, including a lot of stuff about the cons. I guess I'll start with that. Uh, I want to make sure to remind everybody that we do actually have training before the conj. Um, you can find more info about that uh, at closure-conj.org. There's a training page there. But briefly, there's a two-day intro to Closure, uh, November 18th and 19th, and we have a one-day intro to Datomic. So uh, that's good stuff. Um, the, I've actually taught that class, and so I, I know it's a solid class, and you'll you'll learn a lot. So um, if you're going to be at the Conj and you're interested in learning more about those technologies, they're good classes. Check that out at the website. I um, want to mention again the uh, Scheme and Functional Programming Workshop, which is going to be held um, the 19th, which is the day before the con start. We're talking about um, in November, so the Scheme Workshop specifically is November 19th. We're, this is all 2014, of course. Um, and you can find out more about that by searching for Scheme and Functional Programming Workshop. Um, I'm definitely going. I've already signed up. There's a f discount <laughs> off the already extremely low price of $20. If you're a Conj participant, you can go for only $15. Um, I doubt the $5 makes a difference one way or the other. It's going to be a really fun um, uh, event. I'm super looking forward to it. I just got back from RacketCon, actually, and that was great. Um, really interesting to see another Lisp community. Um, super friendly, super smart people. It was really fun. I imagine the Scheme Workshop will be precisely the same. Of course, we talked about that on the last episode with Will Bird. By the way, if you're getting ready for Conj, a good way to do that might be to check out our friend Eric Norman. He was our guest on the show. He has a, a pre-Conj prep newsletter that he's doing. You can check out uh, more information about that at lispcast.com. But basically, he's sending out some emails. Um, you can get on his list to talk about some of the speakers, what they're going to be talking about, why you might care about what they're talking about, and some background stuff. It's good stuff. I've been reading them. I think it's useful for... Anyone that's going to go to the conj to get that background. So uh, check that out at lispcast.com. Another thing about the conj I want to mention, um, other than to remind you to go get your tickets, of course, because uh, that would be good. We'd love to see you there. Is that for the first time ever, uh, the Closure Conj has a program, an opportunity scholarship. Um, and this is for people who would love to go to the conj but are unable to for financial reasons and are members of traditionally underrepresented groups in technology which includes, but is not limited to, African Americans, Hispanics, Native Americans, persons with disabilities, and women. Um, and again, like I said, that's not the limit. You can find out more about this at closure-conj.org slash grants. Um, definitely check it out if you're like, I'd love to go, but I can't afford it. Um, and, uh, of course, this is aimed at, the, like we said, the members of communities who are traditionally underrepresented in technology. So. Um, we would love to make that mean that more people can go um, that would otherwise not be able to go. So we were looking forward to seeing everybody there. Um, I think that's it as far as Conj-related stuff. I do have one more um, thing I want to mention, which is Toby Crawley of Red Hat and also of Immutant fame will be speaking at the Tri-Closure Meetup at Cognitech headquarters in Durham, North Carolina on Thursday, September 25th. Um, which is tonight. <laughs> I think we're going to get this out on the 25th. So uh, if you uh, hear this in time and you and you are in the Durham area and you can make it down, that'd be great. Uh, Toby is a, a great uh, a great guy, knowledgeable speaker. So uh, be well worth your time to to check that out. Um, 
assuming we get this out uh, before that happens. And if not, hey, it was great, uh, so you missed a good time. All right, we will end it there as far as announcements. We will now go on uh, to episode 64 of the Cognicast. you are yep i think i am awesome all right well welcome everybody to the cognicast today is friday august 29th in 2014 and we are very very pleased today to have as our guest ashton kemmerling well welcome to the show ashton thank you craig happy to be here yeah well it, we're actually psyched to have you i think uh you know you actually reached out to me and said hey would you be interested in doing a show about this topic and i said well yeah that'd be great um, but before we get to that, uh, I want to ask you the question we start the show with, which is the song that we played in on uh, is your selection. What would you like us to play? Um, we're listening to Luke's Arimque, composed by Eric Whitaker. And I believe the my favorite particular uh, recording that is done by the BYU Choir. Um, okay. I think there's several different recordings. It's a, it's, a, it's a choral arrangement, so there's several different like versions around. Cool. That sounds great. Were you a singer yourself? Uh, no, actually, I, I played in band, but uh, in marching band, this was our warm-up for the the entire brass section. The lyrics aren't super important to Luke's Rimque. It's the tones and, and, and just kind of the atmosphere it creates, so you can recreate it with brass instruments really nicely. And uh, I like both versions, but the I think human voices are a little bit nicer on it. Cool. And do you still play? Unfortunately not. I got into the bad habit of getting my lip pierced the moment I went to college, and that kind of ended that. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. I grew up in Minnesota, and I would I would think that that would impose additional problems with you know cold metal and everything. Yes, um, yes. <laughs> okay, well, great. So let's let's jump over to the reason that we wanted to have you on. So maybe I can just start by having you introduce yourself, the work you do, and then you could actually introduce the the thing you wanted to talk about. So uh, I've kind of had a, a storied history with diff- different. Uh, different types of technologies. Actually, my first job out of college was Common Lisp. And because of that, I've always had kind of an idea, uh, an eye towards closure. Just um, in my first job, we were looking at it as a potential hopover. And a couple of jobs later, where I currently now work at Pivotal Labs on, on Pivotal Tracker, I was taking a good look at some bugs that were cropping up. And I was thinking, you know, there's got to be a better way to test this stuff. And Lo and behold, I took a look around at uh, a couple different libraries, and one of them was SimpleCheck, which is now uh, test.check. It got absorbed into Clojure Core afterwards, and we decided to take a swing at seeing if we could test some of our stuff with Clojure and ClojureScript, um, even though we actually don't use Clojure or ClojureScript for actual production use at Tracker at this time. And the experience has actually been very, very positive so far. So we can talk about the, the individual. There's actually three different ways we're testing our application okay. with that. So, uh, and, so, sorry, so, so this is interesting, right? So you have a, a big application. I mean, Pivotal Tracker, I think a lot of people know that. Mm-hmm. I certainly use it. I've used it on multiple different projects. 
huge web application. I don't, I don't, I mean, like in the sense of being very popular, I don't know, mm-hmm. like the code a, count or anything. A lot of code. <laughs> okay. So there's a lot of code and I think it's written, I believe it's written in Rails. Uh, yes. Yeah, Rails backend and a huge backbone JS frontend. Right. Yeah. I mean, obviously if, if anybody's used it, it's very sophisticated web application. I mean, in the sense of a lot of stuff that's clearly not, you know, render a page on the server and mm-hmm. send it down every time somebody clicks on something. Um, okay, so then you you have this application, which, as you say, is not written using any of the you know closure related technologies. But you said, I think I think we can test this, and mm-hmm. there is some interesting stuff going on over in the closure world. Uh, you mentioned test.check. You also mentioned, and so now I guess there is backend pieces that you're interested in testing and front end yeah. pieces. So maybe we could pick one of those and then swing around to the other one later on. So I don't, like, how would you? Let's pick the backend since I'm a backend okay. guy. Sure. So um, let's see. The easiest place to start this is the after I did some unit testing on on the JavaScript end, which we'll get to in a second. And actually, this had peaked. We did this during a hack week. I know you guys at Cogn- uh, Cognitech have a, have like a Friday hack day. We do a once a quarter weekish kind of deal where we can we can pick whatever we want to work on and pair up or not pair up. And uh, that's where the first the first iteration that came out of that hack week. And afterwards, um, my my direct manager was talking in a stand-up and he said, you know, we've got a problem with with this story reordering problem. So for those of you who've never used Tracker, Tracker is a bunch of what we call stories. They're individual little sections on panels. So there's different panels for like what's currently being worked on, what's going to be worked on next, and what's in the far future. And they're ordered according to states. So you can have an unstarted story, you can start it, deliver it, finish it, uh, finish it, deliver it, and have it accepted or rejected, which then goes back beginning and obviously when you start a story it hops up to the started section so there's a there's a concept of ordering in there and we have a particular endpoint where if things go wrong it's like okay we'll reorder it according to the business rules and there was a bug in there we knew there was a bug in there that had been a bug in there for years that occasionally it would just get it wrong and it would get it wrong in a pretty degenerate way which would result in the project basically locking it was really rare, but we nobody could ever figure out exactly what caused it. Because this crops up in like, you know, you've got a project with 3,000 stories. Good luck figuring out where the problem is. So my manager came to me and said, you know, we think we're, we're rewriting this anyways. We know that there's problems and we, we want to get more performance out of it. Why don't you and Glenn, another, another pivot uh, who works remote. Is that uh, you guys call yourselves pivots? Yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. We call ourselves Cognitechs, which. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. Go ahead. Absolutely. And he said, you know, why don't you and Glenn pair up and see if you can hit that? And we knew that, we knew that, you know, Clojure's a JVM. We've got JDBC. We've got nice HTTP libraries. Okay, we can generatively test test this ourselves. So in, in one day, we, uh, we wrote some tests that their job was to randomly generate stories in memory of like uh, in immutable hash maps. So it, it would, using the generators, it generate a hash map that represent all of the state a story could have in arbitrary order, not really business order, and slap it to the database. And then it would hit this reorder endpoint and then poke the database again and say, okay, are these things ordered correctly? Mm-hmm. Is it ordered by state? And the answer tended to be no, actually, huh. uh, <laughs> once you threw enough things at it. And that was a really interesting moment where it would hit bad states. I mean, obviously, if you drop a, if you've never used test check or anything similar, the basic idea is that instead of saying like, okay, here's the hash map I'm going to test, you end up saying, I need a hash map and it needs these keys and these values need to be 
strings or integers or fr- something from this list or a list of things. And it just kind of randomly hunts out for bigger and bigger things. And if you drop a, a print statement in the middle of it, it's really kind of funny because you can watch it like do tree hunts up and down as oh. it as it goes towards really big and really simple. Because whenever it finds a failure, it tries to hunt down and see if it can simplify it. So we ended up finding a case, a failing case with four stories that would provoke the problem and end up, end up leaving the system in, in an ugly state, which was a huge win. And we were also able to verify that to the best of our knowledge, the new code, which had been finished rewriting at that point, did not suffer from that problem. So, so now, the, so the, right, we've had Reed Draper on the show. I don't know if, I don't know if mm-hmm. anybody that's listening to this has, has heard that one where we talked a bit about this. And this, I mean, this is exactly what he described in, in, in being the wins. Like you have these, you describe your input sort of generically, and then the system generates a boatload of test cases. And then you say, here are kind of the rules for what has to be true if my system is working correctly. Right. And then if it finds one test case that's really complicated, it tries to find a simple one. And it sounds like you guys got exactly that in the sense that mm-hmm. you came up with this four, what you said, four stories in the failing yep. test case. Exactly. And yeah. so obviously that's really easy or relatively easy, at least compared to, you know, something with 130 stories or 3000 yeah. stories to kind of see what's going on. So it sounds like, you know, that was a beautiful. Now, the one thing that tends to happen, I've heard, is that the the hard part is all in writing the rules. Did you find that to be true? Uh, yes. And well, yes and no. So I, I tend to build these things out in a couple of phases. And it was kind of an interesting pairing experience because I've got I've got significant Lisp experience behind me and I've got a decent amount of closure experience from just like hack projects. And my pair, Glenn, hadn't touched Scheme, hadn't touched A-Lisp, um, in particular Scheme from his college years in like 20 years. Mm-hmm. So um, it was very uneven on the, uh, on the uh, uh, experience curves, which actually probably ranked up as the biggest problem. And the you know, tooling, because most editors are not prepared for for the onslaught of parentheses. But the the way we built this up was we actually test drove our tests upward. We'd write a test that would prove that we were mm-hmm. capable of doing things to the database that we thought we were doing. Because these kinds of things get really nasty when you get to the point where you think you're actually testing things, and it turns out an early assumption about how JDBC worked or how you're whether or not you're writing to the database correctly is wrong, you have to you've wasted so much time. So we wrote simple unit tests of I'm capable of writing to the database. Okay. I'm capable of hitting this endpoint. Okay. I'm capable of checking the database afterwards. Okay. That kind of stuff. So so these were tests of the test code you were like what yeah. part what what thing were you testing? Because you have your the generators that produce the yes. input, and then well, you this have... is before the generators were even written. Okay. Because you need, if you're starting with just closure and a fistful of libraries like test check, uh, closure test, and some JDBC stuff, you don't really have any. You need a fistful of utility functions for doing things like talking the database correctly, pinging the server correctly, and right. checking the results. And of course, your application is not written in closure, so that stuff right. doesn't exist for you. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay. Exactly. Right. Yeah. So we're starting completely from scratch here. So once that stuff was worked, we would write a simple generator, and we would write a we would start writing a the invariance. Uh, for those of you who haven't heard that before, invariant is a a statement which always must be true. So, and um, a good example is in in Pivotal Tracker. For those of you who've used it, uh, stories must be order accepted stories must be in order of accepted at date. So. Whatever the accepted at date controls the ordering of those things, and that's the statement that's always true, no matter what. Mm-hmm. So we'd start writing out these these big 
you know, assertions, these big invariants to drive that. And we were a little bit lucky in that there's very clean business rules that drive that. So I could rattle off, not that they're super important in this context, but a whole bunch of rules that stories must follow and that the, the, the reordering logic must follow. So for example, one of the fun ones is it should be stable. So if I have the story orders, the bad story orders from before that were just completely random and I sort it, two stories that are in the same kind of grouping, so let's say two started stories, they should remain relative stable ordering. They shouldn't change positions. All it should do is just accrete the different groups into where they belong without shuffling them internally to themselves. So we could write stuff like that. And once we'd had a sufficiently good, a sufficiently good uh, um, assertions there, we let the generators balloon massively. I think that particular test has got like, two or three hundred lines of generators, just lots and lots of them. So, a, go sorry, go, and I was just to say, like, I was thinking about that one with stable sort order, or stable, stable, yeah, stable sort order, but within different types of sorting, you could actually do stuff, and maybe you did this, where you could make the generator select a sort order along with the other things it's selecting, and then basically test, and I shouldn't say sort order, is like a sort type, right? Like, mm-hmm. you sort things, you could say, check them all, <laughs> Yeah. Right? So that's interesting. Okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. Get yeah, it. That's a cool idea. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of, it was kind of a weird realization halfway through is I'm using closure to test an API that's dry, being driven by a huge SQL statement under the hood. But so. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it's, that's, um, that's logic program. You've got, you've got yeah, functional, right. you've got Ruby sort of um, OO slash functional style, and then you've got mm-hmm. the logic program in the mix too. Why not? Yeah. Yeah. So, and the, I guess the second huge win there was, uh, aside from finding that bug, given the complexity of, of the, the of the, the tests are capable of covering, and you know, if the generators we created are capable of describing any state in the system, including edge cases that crop up, like two stories with the exact same uh, accepted at date, mm. like that's that's a weird edge case that does happen occasionally, and we can we can hit that. So because of that. You know, all we have to do is just dial the numbers up and say, okay, it ran for 45 minutes and it found not a single problem. So we have extreme confidence that this piece of code works exactly like we expect it to, mm-hmm. you know, which is nice. So now you were looking for, I mean, you started out at least looking for a specific bug. Yes. Um, did you wind up finding unexpected bugs, like other things that were lurking that nobody even knew about? Unfortunately, no, on this one. Mm-hmm. Um that particular bit of code is pretty single-purposed, so it's entirely possible that before we were hitting multiple bugs that had the same, that had uh, or different causes of bad orderings. But the that the only job of that code is to take a project stories and reorder it according to business rules. So there's not really, you know, there's only three possible conditions: it blows up, it works, or it doesn't. Gotcha. So, yeah. Okay. All right. Sorry. So you were telling the story. So you you had coded. You were all on your way to coding this things up. You, you you were pairing. You you got it. You got it working. You and at some point you bridged over to hey look the new code doesn't have it. Was there a piece of the story that we hadn't quite gotten to yet where you were things are working but you're not quite all the way through to make giving yourself confidence in the code is behaving the way it should? Uh no. I think that was actually we actually got all of that done in one day. Um, oh really? Yeah. It was it was one day from nine a.m. to five thirty p.m. We got the whole thing down and completed, which was actually really cool. The hardest part of the whole thing was just convincing Rails to start up at the same time because we, 
you know, if you're closure testing a closure program, you, you know, you just bring in the functions you need and away you go. Life is easy. If you're integration testing an external service, that service needs to be alive for you to work against. So that, that proves to be um, a little bit more tricky, but, but yeah, that, that, that pretty much got the majority of it. And it was kind of stunning just the short time that it takes to get a lot of that stuff done and to, and to, to be certain that we never really, we never need to worry about that section again. And even if we go and modify it, all I have to do is go back to my test and turn it on and be like, okay, look, we have a, it works. Or if we add another story state, all we have to do is go back and modify the generators and open up the tabs again and see, you know, if anything interesting falls out or if it, you know, everything we write works. Do you have plans to make it part of your, so I guess, yeah, this is good. I mean, so it worked great this time. Does that mean you plan <laughs> to use it again? Uh, you know, would you put it in, in part of whatever uh, CI or build process you have? I mean, are you going to kind of, when, when, so when was all this taking place? Uh, this is probably a couple months ago. Hmm. We have a hack week about once a quarter and we do, and this fell out about two weeks after the hack week. So yeah, this is probably about two and a half months ago. Okay. As far as CI goes, though, we're, we're kind of in a state of flux. We have problems that only really crop up for teams of our of our type. Uh, for those who haven't used Tracker, Tracker is, I wish I had the stats in front of me. It's uh, I do know how many specs we have, which for TDD organizations will make some difference. We've got 53,000 Ruby specs and probably 14,000 JavaScript specs. So we have kind of an interesting set of problems. Um, we used to use Jenkins, and we're in the process of changing to Circle CI, which has kind of thrown a lot of plans we had to like concretize these things into like permanent members of our spec runs into kind of flux because nobody really knows exactly what's going to happen mm. with that. So that's been unfortunately not shelved, but it's it's in a temporary state of limbo because when you're on Circle CI, you don't you don't have as much stuff as you have on Jenkins. It has a lot of nice things and nice reusable high-powered uh, VMs and the ability to just purchase more without having to go provision a new you know, Mac Mini or anything for your Jenkins and and automatic working with GitHub and all that jazz, but it it is a little bit more of a constrained environment, which makes life, and this is actually, the reason why this is on hold is not because of concerns about the closure setup itself, it's actually the complexities of bringing in a Rails application to test something else, and which is something we're actually facing as far as like integration builds and stuff like that is you concerned. You mean bringing in a Java application to test something else? Well, we need the Rails application too, because oh, okay. that needs to be running. So oh, we've right. got... Yeah, so we've got an interesting problem there, and several different sets of our testing tools have this issue. We're, we've yet to fully flush that out. So, yeah, so so it's it's on temporary hold. But actually, the use of Clojure itself is continuing to expand, um, which is actually the second case. And I think you'll probably be really interested in this. And actually, I'm going to be giving a talk at the Conj this year. Oh, great! On, at this on this exact subject, I just found out yesterday. Which is <laughs> Congratulations! Awesome. Thank you. But I sat down one day and looked at this and said, hey, wait a second. Selenium's a Java library. I have a Clojure compiler. Hmm. So I came up with the interesting idea of, can I generate descriptions of actions in generative testing and use that to drive a Selenium browser to do random integration testing? So I got to say, you know what this sounds a bit like. 
uh, oh crap, simulant. Yeah, simulation <laughs> testing. Not necessarily simulant per se, but simulation testing. And I was actually going to ask you about that because there's definitely um, a spectrum, right, of, mm-hmm. um, of testing that we've talked about before where, um, and you've moved a good way down it from the unit <laughs> testing end of that spectrum to, um, you know, towards the other, the other end where something like simulation testing lives. So I, I, that's, that's very interesting. And it, so, sorry, we just kind of went all over the place right there. <laughs> so let's see how to unpack this. I'll just let you keep talking. Go ahead. Sure. So the, another important thing to understand about the tracker team is tracker is a huge project, but we're not a very big team. Um, I think we've got maybe 14 people or maybe 15, including managers, product owners, um, test personnel. We've only got three test personnel and one support person. So for fifty-three thousand specs, yeah, for uh, <laughs> uh, closing in on sixty-four, probably. Wow. Okay. Um, yeah. So, and uh, the JavaScript side has four engineers. <laughs> the Ruby side has got, I think, six. So we don't really have a huge amount of like manpower to throw at these things. So we've got to be very. Um, very discerning about how we do things. So, and I was looking into simulant, uh, not just simulation testing, but simulant itself mm-hmm. later. And I realized the biggest problem we'd have there is analyzing it after the fact. I need, I need something that tells me yay or nay whether or not it worked. And so, what I ended up doing, and this is actually an ongoing project, and there's talks of actually wiring this up for performance measuring. Tracker is pretty complicated, and there's a lot of different things that can affect performance. So we're, we're very interested in anything that can let us kind of smash the system and find out if anything nasty falls out. But we, uh, we just, I decided to start writing some integration tests and we've been pairing this over the past month or so. And the interesting thing about this is actually a fairly large amount of good and useful invariants fall out of integration tests. So mm. in, a, in a classic integration test, and we have a fairly large number of those, I think about 200 and something capybara, I think 248 capybara specs, which are, are fairly cumbersome to write, even though we've got a really nice kind of abstraction over the different versions of the application all that jazz. But majority of them are basically, I've come up with an action, right? I've decided to do this, this, and this. And I'm going to drag this story here, and I'm going to start this story. And I'm expecting this final ordering. And that's really hard to do generatively. For those who've never used generative testing, it's it's the, the biggest problem is by nature, you don't really know what the data going in is because mm. you asked for randomized stuff. So you've got to figure out a way to determine whether or not things have gone well or gone poorly based on something that doesn't require the input data. Or maybe you have to parse the input data, one of the two, right? which gets tricky. So we were looking at this and it's like, okay, of course, if I don't know what action I am going to do and whether or not this action is valid, business-wise. So let's take, for example, dragging and dropping. I'll make up a generative action that says pick one story and pick another story and drag from that story to that story. I'm not sure if I'm allowed to do that, right? Because there are some drags that are not allowable. So, okay, how do I generally test this? Well, maybe I don't actually care whether or not the drag was allowed to happen. Maybe I just care that the application didn't blow up. Mm. Or maybe I just care that the application JavaScripts-wise and the application database-wise agree on what the state of the system is. Sure. You know, it doesn't matter if that drag was said no. I just care if that drag was allowed to happen in one place and it didn't happen somewhere else. That's a huge deal. If it 
you know, if it just says, if, or if I drag it and instead of just saying, no, I can't do this and, and just not no action, it blows up um, and throws up an error to the user. Now I care. That's, that's a really important thing for me to, to measure. So, mm. and the, the way that you end up actually doing this is actually kind of a funny declarative way of you end up describing the actions that you can do as a user in terms of data structures. So I've got a drag actions, you know, it's a little hash map of type drag and drop, uh, you know, an idea, story ID of where I'm going from and arguments of where I'm going to. And I just simply generate that and use multi-methods under the hood to route to different functions whose job it is to, oh, okay, let me call all of the WebDriver CLJ methods required to, to do that particular, that particular choice mm -hmm. and call all the JavaScript stuff under the hood. Which is also really neat to watch because unlike most uh, most generative testing, you can actually physically see it happen. <laughs> sure. There's a browser open in front of you, flitting random things about um, at very high speed, which is really cool to watch. Have you? So this is really cool, I and mean, this is actually um, very familiar territory for me in a sense because my client, whom people have heard me mention many times, is RoomKey, and they also have a um, application that's kind of architecturally similar in that they have a, a back end and a very rich JavaScript front end. Sure. Now their sure. back end's written in Clojure, but still. <laughs> yeah. So I have a little library, so to my own horn here. I have a little library called Causatom. I don't know if you've mm -hmm. seen this at all. I've heard of it. Yeah, I haven't okay. used it yet, though. So you might want to look at it. Uh, it's actually, I, I'm rather proud of it because it's one of the few times where I feel like I wrote a library and it just does one thing and it actually does it right. And I've I've got almost no, there's a couple little things I'd like to change, but basically I'm like, it's done, <laughs> right? Which I don't often get to. That's um, good feeling, yeah. Yeah, but so the idea behind it is pretty simple, which is um, you define states and then transitions between the states and there's a little, you know, data grammar for it. You know, you make like a map, right? And you say, mm -hmm. here are the states. And then you say, um, here are the probabilities of transitioning between these states. Mm -hmm. And then you say, here are the distributions of how long those transitions will take. And then it'll hand you back like a sequence of states. And I've used this very successfully to generate user actions against a website, right? So like right, do right. this, a, a particular user, and we know which one, does this and then does this and then does this. And <laughs> I, could, I could well imagine feeding that into one of a couple things, either the integration test you're talking about or, you know, if it makes sense for you guys, I could imagine feeding it into... Um, a simulant or you know some sort of simulation right. testing test generator so you'd have a script which you could then farm out to instead of one machine you know a thousand or whatever you know stand up a whole fleet of t2 micros on aws or something mm -hmm. and have each of them run a selenium test and pound the living hell out of your um <laughs> out of your application and gather the data afterwards i think that would be super cool <laughs> yeah that's actually so i was trying to remember i, I remember you mentioned that before on the show and i was i was only I was trying to look it up, and I kept hitting simulant because I was thinking of simulation mm. testing. Um, and that was actually something that crossed my mind before. Um, the because we we have needs of uh, of a couple of different things. One is the application okay. Two, how how long are individual actions taking? Mm -hmm. um, there's a couple different points in the system I could dig further into it, but I take a look at it and said, man, I really wish I had immutability right here at this <laughs> one spot. Yeah. Um, if I had this, I could throw away like a thousand lines of JavaScript. But, uh, and then two, we have needs of, of like, just what happens if I smash the system? 
And the, the, the reason why we actually haven't done that is because uh, we use Blue Box as our hosting, and um, we share load balancers with other people, mm-hmm. and they wouldn't like it us very much if we decided to purposely DDoS ourselves and therefore any other anyone else who was unfortunate enough to be sharing the load balancer with us. That would sure. not be a very good neighborly action. <laughs> no, it's a very valid concern. I mean, you have these things in the real world, right? Like, yeah. you, you know, there's the, the network is a shared resource, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. If I take somebody else's prod down to make sure I don't do it to myself, I'm, I'm not going to be very happy. Yeah, yeah. So that's interesting, though. With, with something like Simulant, how do you, or no, sorry, Simulant again, uh, if using Cause Atom, how do you determine whether or not the actions were successful? It's not about that. Mm. Right, like this is so. This is the thing where something, an approach like simulation testing, can be valuable. As you separate, right? Here's our mm-hmm. our old closure ideal of keep things, keep separate things separate. <laughs> yes. You would say, well, that's about generating actions, and then let's do that, and then separately let's record them. Okay. Sure. And then separately let's validate them. Right. Really and, pull those concerns apart. And that much, I, that that I understand. I'm just wondering how you go about the last bit of that. How do you how do you validate the action? Yeah, it's really that's that part's. And this is the thing with simulation testing is, um, it's super powerful, but it doesn't. It's not free. Like it's mm-hmm. it's really domain dependent, right? Like right. I, I think we're gonna have more to say about this at at some point. But there's definitely a sense in which, you know, validation is inherently to at least some degree in the problem right not in it's not it's not inherently generic right the way something like say random numbers is essentially generic yes, but exactly so i don't i don't have like a specific um here is how you do validation it really i would say the only generic thing you could say is write down what happened <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. remember it and then later you can go back and and look at that and say does it make sense and if you're lucky, you'll have all the information you need, and if you're not, then you'll you'll <laughs> gather more, right? Right. Um, one of the nice things about writing the test down and keeping it separate is that you can just say, "Oh, well, let's run it again and gather the right. gather the right. additional data." That's so. something. That's something that that test check's starting to do is give you the seed it used to to start right. with. And yep. That's something that uh, I'm thinking about trying to explore later, but. Yeah, that's 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 an interesting an interesting thing falls out of that. You have a slightly different problem because your back end's written in Clojure and the front end is written in JavaScript or Clojure script, mm-hmm. I'm assuming. But JavaScript, yep. Mm, but the the interesting thing that falls out of it is you kind of actually end up modeling bits of your system in a different language. So there's in for example in the story ordering thing, it's not it's nowhere close to a complete version of Tracker, right? You can't get that in a thousand lines of of uh, you know, closure code, sure. um, but it's magical, but it's not that magical. Um, <laughs> but the, you end up slightly remodeling your system. So there is a small model of how, of story ordering in, in that test. And I think there are huge pros and cons to that. The con obviously is it takes work and they can fall out of sync. And if they fall out of sync, you end up with tests that go red for reasons that are not valid failures according to business rules, right? And the con, the pro is you get a chance to step back and take a good look at what you've done through a different lens. If if you've lived your entire life in Rails and you've got all these libraries that make your life easier and all of these almost kind of uh, auto magic kind of things and all of the helper functions you've built up, it's really easy to accidentally glaze over the complexity of the system that you've written. And you haven't really actually gotten rid of the complexity. You've amortized it. You know, it's like, oh, hey, look, every once in a while I'm going to, you know, slam into this huge 
problem because there's this bit of code that actually nobody knows how it works, mm -hmm. right? And modeling it somewhere else gives you a chance to take a step back and either we have realized either A, we have made a huge mistake, or B, oh, here's this much simpler way of doing it, or now I understand it in a much more complete way because I've been forced to think about it harder and understand it more completely, which is a kind of an interesting tertiary effect that more falls out of just using a different language and different tool that forces you to walk away from every bit of uh, stuff you've got built up around yourself, hmm. which is yeah. nice and weird at the same <laughs> yeah. time. <laughs> I could, yeah, no, that's a really good point. I'll, I'll have to think on that some more. Mm -hmm. uh, I try to think... Well, I would, I would love to. I would love to sweep back around. We said we were going to talk about the front end, and sure. uh, you know, you had you had said that you employed this technique in both places. So I'd love to hear the story of how that sure. went. So the, the the front end story is both a story completed and a story restarting. So the 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 beginning is um, the way Tractor used to work is we used a chunking system. Um, for those of you who've done, I know Greg, you're mostly a, a back end guy, but for those of us who who've done a lot of front end work, you'll know that the DOM time dominates everything. Unless if you have the most slow back end in the world, or you're on a terrible terrible network, DOM time dominates all. We've got and we measure all this stuff. And so like anytime you touch the DOM, it's slow. This like it's painfully slow, and it's painfully slow on in areas you wouldn't expect and on browsers you wouldn't expect. So like, for example, let's say you sit there and you work only in Chrome and you're like, hey, this is great. And then you flip over to Safari and you go, whoa, this is not so great anymore, um, is a very common experience. So one of the things we like to do is minimize DOM interactions. So the naive way of rendering something like Tracker would be just to render the whole panel. And that's worthlessly slow. So we used to do chunks, right? So four stories to a chunk. And if a story moved, it would enter and exit a previous chunk, and those chunks would be re-rendered. And for those of you who haven't seen Tracker, the, the story previews actually aren't that much stuff to them. There's maybe a little bit more DOM than I'd like, but it's not excessive. It's just like the story title, some colors, some classes, a few buttons, call it a day. And so this, as a, this kind of chunking system, even with that small bits of DOM, was painful. And as you got bigger and bigger, it got worse. So... One engineer, not myself, had a brilliant idea of, hey, why don't we just, these things can update individually, right? If the story name changes, we can just do the DOM switch there. The important thing is reordering and removal. Okay, why don't we just do an array diff? It's just an array, right? We've got, we've got a, uh, uh, you know, a list of IDs of, of things, and we can keep the previous one, and we can then when we want to update again, we've got the new ones coming in, and we can then just figure out what the operations we can do. We can mm -hmm. do one huge insertion. Like if you're adding three stories right to the middle because of a drag drop, don't add, add, add. Add one of them. Just one big chunk of DOM right there. And if you want to, you know, if things get shuffled around, don't re-render chunks, just move them. Because that's, and for those of you who, who've used React, this is going to start feeling kind of yearly similar. Right. And we're fully aware of the, the irony on that one. But, um, so we wrote an array diffing thing, and a thing whose job it was, was you, uh, panel items in particular, was you hand it a thing, right? It, it, uh, it remembers it, and you hand it the same thing, but in a different order, and it does the diff and does all the operations to to get it right mm -hmm. so to and so the tests are relatively simple i make some fake objects in an array with ids and i throw it in there and then i change the order of that throw it in there again mm. and then i should expect the correct order of ids to fall back out when i calmly ask for them afterwards 
it's like the JavaScript tests for these things are seriously like seven lines um, a piece. They're very, very small. So we wrote that and hey, you know, FPS went from 15 to 25. Awesome. Excellent. Nice. Uh, um, you know, and we, everything was good and perfect. You know, you can drag stories around. Everything's awesome. And then we added a feature called My Work, which is a panel with stuff that you're responsible for. But more importantly, unlike other things in Tracker, you can sort it, which is not a thing that exists elsewhere in Tracker. Everything else in Tracker is according to business rules. So there's no concept of like resorting. There's there's the recovery mechanism on the back end, but the user can't decide to be like, ah, I want to shuffle this thing. Mm. But on My Work, you can sort by project, you can sort by started at date, state, blah, 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 all these things. And so I sort it and the order shuffles, right? Because that's what sorts do when things are not in a, a given order. And the order was completely random. Mm. <laughs> not at all what we were expecting to do. And this is this is after the panel items thing went out to production, I'd like to point out, in the previous use cases. So okay. <laughs> go figure. Yeah. So we're sitting there, and um, for those of you in the kind of agile world, Lisa Crispin, uh, who works on our team, was like, I don't understand what this is doing. And if Lisa Crispin's saying that, you've got some problems. <laughs> and so we, we hunted around, and it just turned out the ray diff and the panel items thing didn't work <laughs> in any way we thought it did. It turns out certain orderings of input didn't, didn't do the right thing and ended up shun- uh, shunting it to the wrong position completely. And only because our specs just didn't happen to exercise the order of stories that could be problematic, which probably sounds kind of familiar yeah. to example. <laughs> we call it example-based testing for a reason. Yeah. Right. Yep. So okay. So we end up we ended up fixing that problem just by sheer luck, honestly, of just hunting around and hitting our heads against the table for two days until until it got fixed, and. But then Hack Week rolled around, and I was like, okay, there's a known bug in this area we fixed, right? I know for certain that it's there. Let's see if this tool could have caught it for us. Let's let's use this as an easy, rather than hunting around for a week and desperately hoping that with a tool I'm not familiar, super familiar with, and because and I was still learning at that point, and um, a new compilation chain I'm not familiar with because ClojureScript, let's see if we can find something. It's like, it's a lot easier just to pick an area. We know we have a bug. So I wrote the test there to, to hunt for it. And lo and behold, it would have caught it. But getting to that point was um, interesting. The, the problem is, uh, for those of you who've digged into the inside of the closure script internals, it uses Google Closure, right? So anytime you do an import directive, you're actually doing a Google.require some Google uh, thing. And same deal with, with I think all of the namespaces are Google.provide and all that jazz. So this, of course, is problematic if you're using that to, if you want to combine that with another piece of JavaScript that uses Google Closure. Mm. Um, the, the tracker code base does use Google Closure in a fistful of places, mostly like browser detection, stuff like that. We use their libraries, but not their compiler, which, of course, means if you just say compile some tests and let's say I write some externs to make sure that, or I use simple so that the Closure compiler doesn't mangle the, the external things I'm naming, which my my code base, and I drop it and my my JavaScript code base into one file, they're going to fight mm. <laughs> because both of them have provided Google.date, uh, and Google does not like that very much. So that actually gets, that was actually probably the hardest part of the whole thing was, and I think the end-up solution was we actually use 
we actually use uh, uh, our ap application compiled JavaScript because we're using the, the asset pipeline, the, the compiled JavaScript code as a library of, of the ClojureScript compiler. So we, we, we compile that to one huge JavaScript file, and then we use that as a library for, for the test code. So the, the ClojureScript compiler is smart enough not to dump in goog.require or goog.provide dates where, or duplicate all the libraries, but it knows to bring its own things along because ClojureScript uses more stuff than our code base did, which meant I couldn't just drop stuff in the code base to, it was kind of a mess. And then once all that's done, you've got an application.js that's for, for tracker that's got all this stuff. And I've got a tracker cljs.js that uh, contains all my tests, but not all of the closure dependencies they need. And then you just dump them to in a phantom JS process and, and tell them to have at it. And it works. Okay. Surprisingly. I, I think I followed that. I, I'm not sure I could recite it back to you, but you know, <laughs> I, would, I would love to see a um, hint, hint, a blog post that, that, <laughs> that describes this process because um, I suspect one of two things would happen. Either you know, you would discover that other people have the same problem and that your solution is the way to do it and you'd be helping them. Or someone will come along and say, we also have the same problem. We solved it this way, which has these advantages. So encourage, I would, you know, hint, hint. Yeah, <laughs> um, I'll get on that. Cool. The, so so you, you overcame these obstacles and then you were finally able to run the tests. Yeah. And lo and behold, it would have actually caught our problem well in advance. Um, that code in particular was just like the poster boy for for uh, generative testing. Like, it's almost equivalent to, uh, I know Aethlite's got a simple thing, it's like showing array sorting. Like, it's almost exactly the same thing. <laughs> sure. I mean, like, it's very functional, right? I mean, it's, right. it's highly functional code when you're doing that type of thing. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. But the, the ongoing story, and this story is actually a story of how we ended up, we ended up doing the, the integration tests at Selenium ones before, was Tracker's got some interesting concurrency problems. Those of you who, who know about um, cap theorem and stuff like that are probably taking a good look at these things and saying, hey, this is a distributed system. I make a change, and now we've got to resolve this between myself, the database, and any other clients who think they've made a change too. Mm -hmm. And the way we do this is we've got a, a it, we have a rebase architecture under the hood, right? It's kind of like Git. So if somebody else commits on your branch and pushes it, and you want to push, oh, somebody else has beat it, so I'll just rebase. And we do basically the same thing with the data. And so it's like, okay, I, I make this, this structure that represents this command, that represents a change, and then I, I un, if somebody, I send it to the server and the server says, no, no, sorry, somebody else has beat you to this, go back. I undo my changes. It provides me all of the things that happened in the meantime. I do those. And then I send my, my command again if it's possible. In some cases, it's not possible, right? If I'm trying to drag a story and somebody else deletes it, eh, sorry. Mm, but right. And that's actually where the, where the integration testing came from, because we had problems with go forward and go back. Uh, and this, this was kind of like the aha moment when I was listening to David Nolan talk was, oh, dang it, if the whole thing was an immutable collection, I could just grab it before I send it to the server. And then, oh, server says no, smack it back onto the, the atom and call it a day. Right. But we had some problems with things going forward and back and not being in the, not agreeing with the the order of the server and that's actually where the integration tests came from and those are slowly turning into a performance measuring tests and that's actually i think the direction we're going to go with the javascript tests of like okay command i've got 
I've got a project that's got a whole bunch of stuff on it. Let's go ahead and grab its state completely and keep it to the side. Let's go ahead and do this command and undo this command. Do we have the exact same state? And are there any conditions where I can create a command such that the command runs, but either the undo doesn't happen or the undo doesn't undo what we thought it was going to undo? Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's also another uh, area where I would be, given the fact that, that this is... It's a distributed system. This is a fundamental problem of distributed systems of you have to deal with conflict resolution. And we've decided, of course, decided to go with first right wins. But, you know, every, nobody gets to escape this this problem. And I think this is an, a, a field absolutely rich for generative testing because we found bugs in things not undoing what we thought they were undoing. And I would be legitimately surprised if anyone else has... has has hit it right, and I would not be surprised in the world if quite a few people have even more bugs than we do, and could could really use this to to flush out stuff and and determine what's going on. And hey, worst case scenario, uh, you know, if you don't find any bugs, hey, more confidence. You know, you know to hunt for your problems elsewhere, which is also a huge win. So the one thing that strikes me is that the the problems with distributed systems that come up that you're referring to have to do with concurrency. Yes, which it's kind of close to strong point. <laughs> it is. I mean, certainly. Uh, however, one of the things I'm wondering about is, it seems like the particular type of generative testing that um, test.check does mm-hmm. is not is not an immediate fit for let's find problems with um, concurrent execution of a piece of code or or a system. Mm-hmm. So that kind of depends on how you're set up, right? For us, it actually is perfect because the way that we actually send things to the server allows for me to easily slip in a concurrent condition because the con- the concurrent condition is i send it to the server and the server the server send- sends me back a rejection with all of the things that happen in your immediate form so okay so that's actually really easy to test i open two browsers I pause one of their, I can, they use a queue under internally, so I can pause that. So any command I try to create doesn't go. It just sits there waiting for the queue to become unpaused. I do some action and I go to the other browser and I do something else that'll intervene. And then I restart and then I restart the queue on the other side. So you, you explicitly control time in that case. Yes. Yes. Time is, time is is a, is a controlled thing in our world. And so that allows for us to very specifically control what, intervening commands are in the queue the moment you try to send a command in, which makes testing for that kind of stuff actually really easy. We do it all the time in our current Capybara tests. Do you have the ability to leverage the sort of the generation aspect of generative testing around time to generate arbitrary orderings? Uh, so that's something that I'm still struggling with at this point. P- typically, and so this is actually the... The problem we've got right now is basically I could generate one intervening action cheaply, right? I open two browsers. That's easy enough. I pause one of them. It's a line of JavaScript in our world. And if you don't have something like that for testing, add it. It's, it's super useful. Mm. I pause with something in this browser. I do one action I generate. I go to the other one. And I do I actually could do one or more actions on that browser. And away we go, right? And I just unpause the other browser and everything is 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 honky-dory. As far as interleaving commands, that would 
proved to be tricky. But the way that we've actually wired up our command system doesn't really allow for that because I am not allowed to send a command until the commands are in strict ordering. Um, I'm sure Kyle Kingsbury could come in and, and explain exactly what we've set up <laughs> and why much better than we could. Okay. But the idea is commands are in a strict order on the server by monotonically increasing version number. So um, I send a command to the server and I say, I am, I am version 74. Here's my, here's my command. Here's my parameters, everything. And the server says, comes back and says, mm, sorry, project's at 76. Here's the other two commands you're missing. And I, do the, I undo my thing, do those two incoming commands. I'm now magically at version 76. And I send it to the server again and say, I am version 76. Here's my command. And then the server says, all right, good to go. Sure. Because of that, the almost every single condition can be tested as a combination of I'm trying to send some command, that's where some generation comes in, and an unknown of in, number of incoming commands are happening. That's that's basically like the combination there. Because if I survive that one, right, and I end up in a new state, everything resets and the exact same next concurrent condition is exactly the same. And if I end up in a state that's bad, I bail out and refresh. Right. So it's either it works or it doesn't at that one exact moment, which makes our testing a little bit easier. Maybe has some some negative side effects that I'm not aware of. Well, I'm certain it does. I think it's a CP system, right? Like you, yeah. you've chosen consistency, and that always comes at the expense of availability. You don't have the right, which I think makes sense. I mean, that's not meant as a as a negative. It's a, law of physics but you know you don't you don't have the ability to set up as we've got 43 data centers and they're all running you know the same application concurrently right like that's that's mm-hmm. what you give up in that case is the uh, the 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 benefits of um of, that an AP system would bring versus the benefits that a CP system would bring at least that's exactly. my naive assessment mm-hmm. of the situation and i mean it's and with all things programming uh you know it's the compromises have to be there that's that's usually where you run into problems is when people claim that there's no compromise. Right. And as I always say, anyone who says that there's, you know, there, you should always, or you should not do something without a caveat is either selling you something or is a fool. Yeah. Even go to has its uses, but the, of course, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Uh, Well, go read the Linux kernel. I bet you there's quite a few in there. Sure. But the, the important thing is if you know what your compromises are and you know why you've decided to make them in, in a yes. positive way instead of blundering into them by accident of history or accident of training, you're going to be in a much, much better scenario. So, for example, we've decided that to take the risk of rollback not going well and having much better recovery mechanisms at the cost of maybe a bit of, you know, some commands don't pass that might have passed before, but we'll less likely to lose user data. And we've decided that user data is, of course, as I think a lot of engineers have decided in our scenario, super important. So we'd rather bail out on somebody trying to update or trying to move a story than accidentally trash the project, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's it it's a trade-off, and I think it's it's a good one. I wish I had immutability under the hood to, to make life easier, but you know, can't have everything. Uh, well, I thought that somebody had ported at least some of the some of the closure style immutable data structures to to JavaScript. <laughs> it was David Nolan. Okay, of course, yeah, of course it was I should know. Nolan. Yeah, all right. Yeah, yeah, and those things, that's actually showing up. He had a tweet recently that apparently it's in the middle of Meteor. 
Oh yeah, I think I saw that. Mori, isn't it called Mori? Yeah, yeah okay. it's called Mori. The the problem we've got is we've got an evented base backbone JS system. Mm-hmm. So there's no like one place where I can just drop a, a huge atom full of all of the stuff I need sure, and sure. call it good. Um, I wish, and you know, but that's you throwing away well, how many lines of code is twenty eight thousand lines of JavaScript to do that is not exactly a conversation I would recommend anyone have yeah. of like, hey, let's throw away uh, you know six years of of working JavaScript code base for something that I'm fairly certain will be awesome. Mm-hmm. That's 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 a hell of a sell, and uh, it's an investment. I mean, that's what it is. It's a big investment, and it's a huge investment. You know, yeah. even if you think it's going to pay off, it has to pay off in certain timelines and and, yes. and make sense from a business perspective. Exactly. And I have I have members of the team who will come to me, and I'm fairly certain some of them are listening to this probably and laughing at me, but um, <laughs> who who have said like, yeah, if we were rewriting this right now, we would probably use OM, but you know, it was written. I don't know how many years ago, five, six years ago, by people who are in, who have moved on to other opportunities. So, you know, you, you take what you've got and you move forward the best you can. And I think the stuff we've added with Clojure is actually a huge win and I think is also a, a hugely um, useful message to a lot of people who maybe like hacking with Clojure and are working on a huge Ruby or Java project to know they, they really can't get the political capital to, to just say, oh, let's pull the plug and switch over, be like, to come forward and say, we have this tool and we can use this to make the product better in a short timeline, you know, is, is, is super useful. And I'm, I'm sure Rich Hickey would be very happy to see the tool being um, a positive impact on different places, even if it wasn't necessarily the primary, the primary source code. I think that's excellent advice. So uh, we, we are coming towards the end of our time here, but I do want to make sure that we reserve a little bit to touch on other uh, any other subjects that we can hit? In particular, I'd love it if you would um, if you would quickly pitch your uh, your closure conj talk. I mean, it's a single track conference, so you know mm-hmm. that's not, I really like that because I'm it makes super it really for that. Yeah. yeah, right. It really makes it easy for me to go. Oh, good. I'm not going to have to choose between X and Y, but I mm-hmm. still want to hear the uh, the. I mean, I'm sure people are going to be able to see the um, abstracts online shortly, but I'd love to hear a little bit more details about what your talk is going to be on. Sure. I'm just going to go go more into the nitty-gritty of how do you make uh, test.check and Selenium go. So, uh, I mean, a lot of what, what I've hit here is more of like the high-level high level stuff, but there's some pitfalls and there's some, some interesting tips and techniques I'm, I'm going to dive into to show you just kind of like how you can get going with the stuff faster without having to make the mistakes I made. Cool. And possibly if... The gods of live demos agree, a live demo, which is, <laughs> and maybe just a video of it actually working one time, depending on how, how my laptop is, is playing nice that day. So. Uh, yeah, probably going to have a backup. I mean, not, <laughs> of all, not all of us can be Bodil and, you know, like live code an editor or whatever crazy thing she does, right? Yeah, no kidding. So um, also interesting for those, I'm assuming this is not going to be a ton of your listeners, but I'm going to be giving a talk. On September 17th in Denver, uh, Denver's doing a Denver Startup Week. It's a series of like talks on design, marketing, tech, business, manufacturing, all the jazz uh, over a week. And I'm going to be giving a talk about generative testing. It's going to be less about like the nitty-gritty of using more advanced techniques and more about here's what this is and here's why you want this. And let's go through some, some simpler examples on that end of the spectrum. 
So that will be worthwhile people to, if you know people in Denver or you're in Denver or in Boulder or something like that, I'd recommend people check it out. I believe it's free for at least my talk. Some of the talks might cost money, but I believe mine might be free. When did you say that was? uh, September 17th. So I... I'm not sure whether we'll get the show out before then. We mm-hmm. actually have a pretty big backlog. But um, if people want to, we always mention people's Twitter handles, so I'm sure that they can uh, find you on Twitter afterwards uh, and right. and uh, and check out any other uh, any other places you'll be speaking or events you're doing. Anything, I mean, that's great, and I I do hope that we do get it out before September 17th. But um, <laughs> this is afterwards. You should have gone. It was you, awesome. <laughs> it was great. Like I guarantee, it was fantastic. You missed an amazing talk. So sorry about that. So cool, cool. Anything else you want to mention before we before we, we wind down here? Uh, no, no. I wish I wish I had more stuff to talk about. Maybe uh, if I come back on another time, I'll have cool stuff to talk about. I would love to have you back on. I actually have like a, a list of things in my head that we didn't even get to. We didn't get to talk about your um, your hack weeks. We didn't get to talk about some other stuff that I um, that I would love to go over with you. So it'd be great if you would come back on and mm-hmm. talk to us again sometime. I would really love that. Absolutely. Okay, cool. Well, then we do have one more question for you. I, I think you're not surprised to hear that it is. What song should we close the show with? Uh, Little Lion Man by Mumford and Sons. Okay, cool. I, uh, is that uh, is that, that more choral music or is this something no. else again? No, that's, uh, I don't even know exactly how to describe Mumford and Sons, but they're definitely not choral. Okay, so. cool. Well, that's playing in the background right now. I will take this opportunity to thank you very, very much for coming on, Ashton. It's been a really great conversation. I found it absolutely fast it's just really fun to me to, to hear how people are using closure but i think your perspective is particularly interesting just because like you said you're using these technologies that i happen to really like but the application that you're working on is not written with them right, right? so that's just a super cool perspective that i know that there are people listening right now who are like oh i wish i could use closure in my day job but their application mm-hmm. is not Written in in closure, and as you say, rewrites are rewrites are rewrites, and and that's not always in the cards. But uh, you know, you found a, a way to introduce it in a, in a way that I think makes total sense. I mean, it wasn't just I'm gonna do this because it's my opportunity to to use closure. It was no, no. This is this this is a, a tool that's right for the job, independent of the language it happens to be written in. So that's that's mm-hmm. cool. absolutely cool. 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 So- have faith, all listeners. You can get it in, too. <laughs> That's right. All right. Well, great. Well, thanks so much again for coming on. It's been great to have you. We will close it down there. This has been the Cognicast. Tremble for yourself, my man. You know that you have seen this all before. You have been listening to the Cognicast. The Cognicast is a production of Cognitech, Inc., whom you can find on the web at Cognitech.com and on Twitter at Cognitech. Our guest today was Ashton Kemmerling on Twitter at Ashton, A-S-H-T-O-N. The Cognicast is produced with help from Alex Miller, Damian Mack, Jamie Kite, Lynn Grogan, Michael Fogus, Paul DeGrandis, Sam Mumbach, and Stuart Sierra. Episode cover art is by Michael Parento. Audio production by Russ Olson. Our producer is Kim Foster. I'm your host, Craig Andera. Thanks for listening. It's not your fault but mine. And it was your heart on the line